Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Welcome, bookcasers. It is another week, another bookcase. We're really excited about this episode, but before we get excited too much and we talk too much about why we're excited, I'm going to introduce my co-host. Here's my co-host. Take it away. And I'm Charlie Gibson, Kate Gibson. Nice to join you. We are very interested in this podcast. And if you listen, I think you'll learn a lot about the book business. This is a subject that we want to explore in this podcast and others uh, to come. How does the book business work? How has it changed? We'll get into all that. But today we're going to talk to an editor. Beverly Horowitz is her name. She's been editing books since 1981. And she's worked with some pretty important authors. Yeah, she has. And we've heard from a lot of you. I remember we had a conversation a few weeks back with Nelson DeMille, and he talked a little bit about his editing process. And some of you wrote to us and said, it would be great if you could talk to an editor. So we found like the quintessential editor. Beverly Horowitz has done it all. And she almost single-handedly discovered Judy Bloom. She's been around the business forever. She has worked a lot, too, in children's literature. So we get to ask her a little bit about the difference between editing and editing young adult or children's literature. And in the last few years, she's developed this amazing specialty that I always was fascinated by when I worked in a bookstore. She adapts popular, often with social justice implications, memoirs and nonfiction for young adult audiences. And I'm fascinated by that. So I couldn't wait to talk to her. Yeah. And she doesn't she makes the very strong point that she doesn't dumb down the books for young adults, but she does make them more approachable for young adults. Some of the examples, she took Trevor Noah's book, Born a Crime, and worked on a young adult version of that. She did Sonia Sotomayor's book, Sonia on the Supreme Court, and her amazing story of growing up not even knowing what a lawyer did when she was young, and now she's on the Supreme Court. It is a different specialty, and why is it really important? So we'll talk to Beverly about that, and then we'll also bring in a young author named Heather McGee, who has written a book called The Sum of Us, which is a book about race in America and how she contends in the book that it pervades every single public policy issue that we discuss, and it shouldn't. And she argues that whites in this country tend to look at any policy that's going to benefit blacks and think, well, it's not going to help me. But her argument is, if you help African-Americans, you're going to help everybody. And it's a really interesting argument, but it's sophisticated in the way she talks about it. She brings it into subprime mortgages, into housing policy, into health policy. And how you take that and adapt that for young people and why that's important is, I think, really interesting. So I hope people will work and listen through right through this podcast, because I think they'll learn a lot about editing and about how authors of really important nonfiction books approach this idea of adapting the books for young people. Yeah. So we start by just talking to Beverly about the editing process. We'll then move into YA. And then I'm really excited because then Heather joins us to talk about her collaborative process with Beverly Horowitz as they release the YA, The Sum of Us. And we'll check in with you guys after, but I hope you'll stick with us. It's a, it's a terrific conversation. So here we start with Beverly Horowitz. 
Natalie Horowitz, it is such a pleasure to have you in the bookcase. And just so that I don't get it wrong, give me your official title. I know you're Grand Poobah of <laughs> Met Everybody in Children's Publishing, no, but that's no. probably not an official title. Right. What's the official title? Oh, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So I'm the Senior Vice President and Publisher at Delacorte Press, which is a division of Random House Children's Books and YA Books. But essentially, you've been editing books since uh, U.S. Grant was president. Something like that. I wasn't here when dinosaurs roamed the earth, but I <laughs> I have been doing it for a very long time. Yeah, I have survived five mergers at the company I have now found myself working at and seen a lot of changes in the industry across adult and kids and YA books. But I do have to say a great book survives all the changes happening around it. Mm. Mm. <laughs> well, and I want to start at the very beginning because our audience, obviously, and I am a lay person. So if you could sort of talk me through the life of a book as seen through the lens of an editor from the beginning till when you say, you know what, this isn't me anymore. It's you. <laughs> right. Happy to do that. So we are always receiving manuscripts most of the manuscripts now are coming in through agents. So one has to step back a few steps and say, how does a writer find an agent? That is complicated. <laughs> uh, you're maybe at a dinner party and somebody says, oh, I have this friend who's an agent and that's how you find your agent. So we're going to take that leap forward and say a manuscript that's agented does indeed come to an editor. And the editor probably has already in mind a sensibility of what is being looked for personally in terms of passions and subjects, as well as marketplace reality. And I'd say in a happy way, probably everybody does have one story to tell that's his, hers. And yet I am looking for something extremely well-written, something that has a focus, something that is evocative, something that has characters that you can't stop thinking about them, especially in fiction. Think about it. These are not real people. Somebody made up these people and I'm walking down the street thinking, oh no, is she going to be okay? Is he fine? And the parents, are they going to get back together? Or is that kid going to be bullied again today? I have no idea, but I must, sorry, I can't eat my lunch. I have to just read the manuscript. And those are the kinds of things that when you're reading a manuscript, it pulls you in. So what does the editor do? The editor says, I want that. Often the manuscript is not just coming to one editor. It is sent to a number of people at different houses, and we have to have a fiscal auction to get that book. And how do you make an author feel, I want to work with him or her or that person? A lot of it has to do with your vision for the text that somebody else has created. You've written something, and in your head, it's ready to be shared. You may have worked on it for six months or 10 years, but what is the editor's opinion? The editor is eager to help not put him or herself or on the page, but to help what is on the page become stronger, become focused. Beverly, I just saw a movie called Genius, which is the story of Max Perkins, one of the great editors of all time, and his yes. relationship with Thomas Wolfe. Yes. And here's a speech in there where he says to himself, I wonder if I'm making this book better. I wonder, am I helping the process or in some ways, am I destroying his prose? How do you know that? 
how does an editor know in his or her gut that she's making this book better? It's a hard question. (laughs) So I will discuss this with the author. I do not have my name on the book. It is the author's. And sometimes I can disagree. And then we have to agree to disagree if it does not seem to me as it is something that really is totally off kilter, totally off kilter. And so you're right. In the end, how do I have the nerve to tell? It is a lot about trust. It is. You need to finally trust somebody. I can think of a very difficult interaction I had with an author I've worked with for a very long time. And I said, you have to put that manuscript in a drawer. And she said, are you kidding me? And I said, well, it took me a lot of courage to tell you that, but (laughs) I I have to say, I don't think you really want to publish this book. I, I feel it's not good for your career. She called me back and she said, well, what could we save? And I said, now that's an interesting question and you're going to answer it. What Mm. in this manuscript is so important to you that you want to use and refocus? You have to go find it and get it and put it together and make it interesting. Interesting enough that it is worth not only your time and the time that I would put towards working toward that, We have to always remember there's an audience, the reader, Hmm. the reader who's very busy with so much else. Are there authors who get too big and decide they don't need you? I think they probably yes. Yeah, we know that the answer is yes. Let's just say yes. That's true. (laughs) However, I think even a friend of mine who's an editor had a joyful moment. Sounds so mean, but I'm going to share it with you. Ready? Sure. Um, and an author rejected a lot of the work that she suggested. And she said, fine, we'll publish it the way you want it. And the reviews were horrible. <laughs> Isn't that a terrible <laughs> thing to say? She was so happy. She was so happy there were bad reviews because they were all the things that she had said, you have a hole here and you didn't make this character strong enough and I don't believe this. And you could fix all these things. And the author said, no, they're fine as is. And so fine, we don't, because you're, you're who you are. We will publish it. And then the bad reviews. You talked about aligning your vision with the author, but before an auction, an author is not going to know that. Do you get a moment to sit across from the author to say, I get what you're trying to say, and here's how I interpret it. And then the author gets to sit with the other guy and says, I get what you're trying to say. You need to turn this into a science fiction novel. And you go, no, I'm going with that one. I'm going with that one. In a manuscript, a text, a creation, so to speak, is constantly changing and shifting. And it's not like baking a cake. I'm not a baker. I'm a home cook. And a baker (laughs) has to follow directions, really, because the chemistry of the baking gives you the final cake in a certain way that is expected. And I don't see a manuscript as a cake in that way. I would say that the the way you approach a book is, for me anyway, is to have a vision, not to be wishy-washy and to say, here are the things. And you might give options. You might say, you know, Mm. if you decide that the structure stays this way and we start the book here, where are you going? But sometimes you say to an author, you know, there's so much information that you're providing for the first few chapters of this book novel, you needed to get that on the page. Mm. You needed to work that out. 
And now you have. And now you can get rid of all that and start someplace else. I want to get a little bit more specific because eventually I want to walk into some projects that you're doing right now. But I want to ask you, how did you end up in specifically being such an incredible expert in YA editing? Like, how did that become a specialty for you? I remember my childhood. (laughs) I think that is an exciting time to help someone really start thinking and understanding relationships, choices, structure, how you might think about not only a book in front of you, but apply the kinds of thinking that you can perhaps learn from these kinds of books. There's only one rule I have in YA editing, and that is that the ending is not so bleak. I'm wondering what kind of book in your mind lends itself to that, as sophisticated as it might be for adults, that there are applications here that young people should read as well. Well, I started doing this quite some time ago as a reader of books about social justice, that seeing a changing world. And these adults, many of them became bestsellers are used in college campuses, and some of them are, in fact, taught in some high schools. But the writing was brilliant. The research was brilliant. And so I approached someone and said, are you willing to work with me to keep your text? We are not rewriting the book. You're brilliantly researching, thinking, putting the words on the page. What we would do would be to edit down the text, and take out some of the material that, and this is not censorship. I'm not doing it as a censor. I'm doing it as an intellectual experience with you to get to the core ideas, get to the most salient features of the book so that young people who may never have thought of these books as something they would read or would find them right? They're not going to find them. But we could have these books available with covers that are appealing. The same title, we'd say, adapted for young people or young adults, possibly change the subtitle and get them out into the world where one hopes teachers, librarians, educators, parents who knew the adult work would think, oh, this is is for my kid. I'll read it with my child. I've read this one. My child should read this. And that's how I started doing this. And we have many that have been successful. Is that part of what you sit down with the author and decide? You say, okay, what age are we shooting for? What's our benchmark of success? Yeah. Well, yes. I mean, I, I can say it really depends on the book. A memoir is somewhat different than a book that has a premise and ideas that a child, teenager may not really have thought about. Right. So working with Trevor Noah on Born a Crime, you know, his story in South Africa, the whole business of how his mother was, his grandmother, where did he belong? Who was he? Was he white? Was he not? He could pass, but he didn't and he didn't want to. And how did he grow up? His mother had, you know, seven religions. It was church every week. They'd go to 50 different churches. You know, he was pulling pranks on his grandmother. I mean, it was riotous at the same time, extremely thoughtful as he was growing up. And I'll tell you with that one, what I did do, and he was open to it, I realized that a lot of kids do not even really understand the history of apartheid. They don't get that. 
I didn't. Born a Crime taught me a lot about apartheid. Okay. There were so many things I learned that I didn't know about apartheid. It was was eye-opening for me, unfortunately. Well, I also decided, as I do in certain kinds of books, that I wanted to make it easier for a teacher and a kid. And so in the back of that book is a short history of apartheid. So- I wrote eight pages or had a historic, an appropriate person worked with me to write eight pages to give an overview of apartheid. Of course, you read the book and you understand what he lived through. But in the back, there are these eight pages and it's a starting point. It's certainly not here. You know everything about it, but it's a starting point. Even I worked with Justice Sonia Sotomayor and her story is incredible, right? From the Bronx against all odds. She's, she didn't even know, there was no lawyer in her neighborhood. What do you mean the lawyer, let alone a chief, a justice? What? But she writes a very moving story. It was really moving. And in the back of that book, believe it or not, we have a history of the Supreme Court. Where did that Mm. come from? How did that start? So luckily we have standing by Heather McGee, who is a very good example of what you're talking about. She wrote a book that sold very well called The Sum of Us. And the subtitle is What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. I read the adult version. Kate read the YA version. And we've been comparing the versions. She argues that there's a belief that whites feel that If things get better for black people, they must be getting worse for whites, what she refers to as a zero sum game. Right. And uh, and that's and and then she applies it to so many different areas of society with very sophisticated discussions of things like health care policy and housing policy and climate policy. Subprime mortgages. Subprime mortgages. How do you adapt that and make it approachable and understandable for young people? When we read the book, my dad and I thought. Boy, would I have understood this as a fifth grader? I'm not sure. So did you always know that this was an argument you wanted to take to a YA audience? So I definitely didn't know that I wanted to adapt the book to a YA audience. It didn't even cross my mind. I wrote the adult book for people who had never picked up a book about the economy, Mm. for people who may not have ever picked up a book about race and racism, for people who didn't consider themselves particularly sort of smart and erudite. Like that's why the cover is a piece of art. That's a painting that's emotional. Like I really wanted to educate and persuade. And so in that way, I think, I hope, and you know, early, early young people who have read the book have reflected back to us. It's okay. That it actually isn't dumbed down because the average reading level in the U S is eighth grade. Right. And so I really hoped, obviously, to reach people earlier in their lives with these core ideas. I mean, it's a very ambitious book, right? It's trying to say that there's sort of like a unifying principle behind why it is that we can't have nice things in society. And that's racism and our politics and our policymaking. And it's trying to give the history of racist policymaking in our economy in ways that we all think about why we don't have universal health care. We all think about the high cost of college and housing and why we can't control global climate change and all of these things. And I'm trying to argue that racism in our policymaking and our politics distorts our ability to solve problems together. So that's like a big idea. And As I went on book tour for the first book, you know, people were saying, I wish this was required reading. I wish this was taught Mm. in schools. I wish I had known this stuff earlier. And that's when the YA conversation really began. It is, though, as I read the book, I was thinking all the way through, 
because I wasn't reading the YA version. I was thinking, how is she going to make this adapted to young people? Now, the simple idea of a zero-sum game, that if it helps Blacks, it's going to hurt Whites. I understand that. And you argue it's not a Uh zero-sum game. If it helps Blacks, it's going to help Whites, and it's going to help everybody. That's a simple concept. And you make that clear in the Uh book. Then, then you're doing how, how it racism pervades and is evident in every single aspect of public policy. You do subprime mortgages, you do the environment, you do uh, housing, healthcare, public schools. And yet, as we compared the YA version with the adult version, we found, Kate and I found, that a lot of the paragraphs, the really complicated paragraphs, are still in there and not a word changed. I have a few good friends who are educators, one who's this like amazing award-winning school librarian. The number one lesson they said to me when I asked them for advice about this was don't dumb it down. Mm. If we don't understand Mm. it, we'll look it up. We'll ask our teacher. Like, don't dumb it down. And I think particularly this generation of young people, they actually have access to all the same information that we do. Mm. which was very different from when we were growing up, Mm -hmm. you know, like they can look at their phones and see it all. And so they are getting the good, bad and the ugly. And in some ways the text is complex. The ideas are complex, but I was really focused on stories, right? Like the subprime mortgage lending crisis. It's Super complicated. Wall Street loves to keep it super complicated, right? Um, and yet at the heart of it is a story of Isaiah and Janice Tomlin, right? As this elderly black couple who were targeted and with a subprime loan, they were cheated and they ended up joining with other people in a class action to save thousands of homes. And that's a memorable story. And in fact, this was a thing when we were editing Beverly, you know, in some ways, Because each chapter has a little bit of history, a fair amount of data, and then some exemplary people who sort of illustrate the dynamics that I interviewed and met along my journey. It's kind of the easiest thing to cut is the stories of people, Mm. right? Mm Because everything else, like, you know, the stories of people just sort of illustrate the point that I've already made with the sober argumentation. And I was really, really insistent that the stories have to stay because A, everybody understands the world through story, but particularly with young people, I wanted to make sure the stories went back in and to Beverly's point, the hopeful ending of each chapter Mm. had to Mm. stay in. When you guys sit down and you decide what audience you want to reach, how much does childhood development and psychology play a role in your choosing the language and what to edit? Well, you know, we did a little bit have a difference of opinion at times. I feel that kids read up. Mm. Mm. They do read up so that I think Heather um, and I both understood that, as I said before, we need the educators, we need the teachers, we need the librarians, we need the parents to help us get kids to think and to read this. And if they just remember some of the families, what they experienced, how they came together, how they became activists, how they didn't just Uh take it. They rose up in small ways in their community Mm. or dealing with this. It's enough. It is enough. Uh Some of the intricacies may not be understood by the young people, but the very accumulation of what Heather writes about, about all the different areas where public policy is affected by racism, 
I finished that thinking, the kids will understand what systemic racism means. I remember having that thought. I thought about, you know, some people I met on my journey who are not very educated and that that is used against them a lot in their lives, that this would be a really good version of the book for community organizers to use, for people to use with working class audiences of people who didn't go to college. It's great to have this. The adult version has about 130 pages of notes Mm. at the end, right? That's 130 pages of citations and explanatory paragraphs about some research that I did that is not in the YA book. And I think in some ways, the 130 pages of citations was sort of signaling to the reader, this is a serious book and I did my work and I am not an imposter. For some audiences, they don't want to be, that's intimidating. Mm. And so taking that out, even just that piece of it probably does a lot and goes a long way. Mm. I do love myself a good policy wonk. Um, (laughs) I I wanted to ask you, okay, so you go through the process. You think you've got a book that's going to reach the audience. How do you know you've done it? I mean, Beverly, do you have like a focus group? Do you have a group of young readers? Do you you go, yeah, I think so. (laughs) Well, you know, you wouldn't do that with a novel either. You wouldn't say, you wouldn't do it with a piece of an article you've written for a magazine, a newspaper, or for a television newscast. You basically... Um, amongst yourselves, I guess, or you individually have a level of confidence. I can say we do have copy readers. We do have proofreaders. We have other people after we get to the end, after we have decided, okay, are you signing off? I'm signing off. And we were adding this or that or whatever in the process. Uh, it is, I, you know, it's hard for the author to say, not that. Are you kidding? I need that. I love that. And the answer is, well, but I think in the end, no, we don't have that kind of focus group thing because that's just one focus group. Heather had colleagues, as she said, teachers who were reading and, and doing that and gave back, gave some feedback. And it's being respectful of our audience and saying, as we've all just said in our own way, we know this is a complicated book, but it's going to be interesting for kids to think, oh, I never thought about the school system this way. Just that, the part that the kid is in every day. When you're reading about the school system, you are in the school system. So there are many sections that I think a kid will relate to. That's what we sat back and thought about. What can a kid take away? There are certain kids that are going to say, I don't know what happened in this book or I only know three things, and mostly it could be about this family or that family or the pool or other things. And yet, I would say that I trust a child, a teenager, to commit to reading this and thinking, I don't know anything about this. It's confusing to me. And then, as Heather said, they have their phone, they have Google, they have the library. I still use the library. I think people love the library and still can go and find out things. And kids today can do this. We presume too much on your both of your times. And yeah. we will, like a good editor, have to cut this down okay. to podcast yeah. length. However, there are so many other things I want to ask you. For instance, yeah. when you compare the sales of the adult version of Trevor Noah's book 
to the YA version. I'm curious how those sales balanced out. And I'm curious in Sonia Sotomayor's case, how the adult book did versus the YA book. And I'm very curious in Heather's case, what you think will be the balance once the YA version comes out. It's hard to discuss specific numbers. So I'm going to generalize and I'm going to say a lot of kids don't know who Trevor Noah is. They don't know. Mm. Mm. They do not know him. So what you might think is not the case necessarily. However, I can say to you that these kinds of books, these adaptations have many lives. They have the hardcover life that puts them into the world and they get reviewed by librarians. And adults know about them as well, and teachers do too. And about a year later, they have a paperback life. And that paperback life is the guts, is the is the bread and butter on the business side of what these books are, right? Hmm. In paperback, somebody for eight bucks might try the book for their child, might give it to the kid. They know the book. They say, oh, I read this. This is something you might like, whereas they might not buy it for $18. That's a lot of money, a hardcover book. And they may themselves feel like this is a hardcover. My kid might not read a hardcover. So it has that Mm -hmm. paperback life. It also exists in audio. And it's a whole other world in audio now. Yeah. So we've got many lives. And I can say certain books that I have worked on in this area have become adopted for classroom use. Mm. So year Mm. after year after year, they go into the classroom because a teacher loves the book and talks about the book and they use the book. There's been about a dozen colleges and universities that have made it their freshman read. Mm. Medical schools are reading it, right? Like it's it's in the classroom. And so my hope is that the young adult version is in the classroom as well. The people that I had read it ahead of time were librarians and teachers, right? That's really the goal is ultimately that this becomes a book that is part of the pedagogy of race in America for young people. And I'm glad for that because it is a hopeful book about racism. And that's really important for young people. And it is a book that gets beyond the us versus them conversation, right? The young people who are reading this book are already in the generation of Americans that have no dominant racial majority. So Mm. their life is a multi, their future, their America is a multiracial America. And so the us versus them black, white paradigm that we've inherited can't be theirs. And so they've got to really say this systemic racism is bad for everyone. It's not about who's going to be on top, who's going to be privileged, who's going to be oppressed. It's bad for everyone. Beverly Horowitz, Heather McGee, thank you both for being with us. Mm. Uh, We've learned a lot about editing and we've learned a good bill about transitions of books to YA versions. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, grownups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. 
Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Wondery Kids Plus on Apple Podcasts today. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's do some rapid fire questions. Okay, we will address the rapid fires by name. We have oh, questions no. for both of I'm you. I'm afraid of these. I don't know what they could be. Oh, they're very easy. Okay. Okay. Heather, author you will read simply because they wrote it. Toni Morrison. Beverly, the book that made you want to become an editor. Roller skates. <laughs> what is roller skates? Ruth Sawyer, a very old book that I found at the library when I was a little girl, and it was about a girl who put on roller skates and independently discovered New York City. Heather, you get five minutes alone with President Biden. What do you say to him? I thank him because I think he's done a lot. He's been underestimated and gotten a lot done. And I spend basically the rest of my time talking about student debt. Heather, if I weren't a writer, I would be... If I had the talent... I would be a musician. Mm-hmm. Like that is like the platonic ideal of joy for me to be able to entertain people through music, create that way. I don't have the talent. So <laughs> there's a lot of <laughs> ifs there. But <laughs> Beverly, same question, slightly different. If I weren't a book editor, I would be. Yeah, well, I'm not going to say a writer because that would be a wannabe and I'm not. No, um, <laughs> I would, I guess, be an actress. Mm-hmm. Love it. Love it. Let me ask Heather, was there a book that made you want to become an author that made you think I should take what I'm doing in public policy areas and turn it into a book? The other person I would have said other than Toni Morrison as somebody I would read anything is Joan Didion. Mm. And Slouching Towards Bethlehem for me had that kind of cultural critique that felt like what I wanted to add to the white papers that I was doing. Right. There was sort of like, you can explain that something is happening in the economy. And I wanted to use good stories and good sentences to have the reader feel why it's happening. Mm. And I think Joan Didion does that so well. I would say, yeah, Jones slash and twice Bethlehem. Last one, Beverly, most misunderstood aspect of children's literature. That it's second rate. That, you know, if you grow up, if you really want to be a writer, go write an adult book. And I, I totally disagree with that. I think we have a lot of great writers and they are, in fact, helping create the future readers 
who are going to maintain a level of intellectual curiosity in the world. So you got to start with the kids. Because hmm. if you don't get a reader as a kid, it's really hard to make somebody understand the joy of reading. It certainly is doable if you find the right book for the kid. Our conversation with Beverly and Heather, you know, it's really interesting, Dad, as my daughter gets older, as Charlie gets older, she's nine now, and and we read next to each other every night in bed. And she always says, what you reading? And I'll tell her, and she always goes, can I read it? And I'll say, because mm, sometimes I like to read horror, and there's a lot of mystery and whatever. But I love this trend in nonfiction that I can turn to her and say, yes, you can read it. And actually, I would love it if you'd read it, and then we could talk about it together. And it's interesting because I don't want our listeners to think that in any way she censors anything. She doesn't. And as a matter of fact, I read the YA version of The Some of Us. My father read the adult version of Some of Us. I'm not quite sure why, because I think he's still playing a grown-up on TV. But <laughs> we got on the phone. I mean, we, we got on the phone and we thought, subprime mortgages. Oh, my gosh. Let's read each other these sections. But they were very similar. This is not about talking down to kids. That's true. And I'll give you the simple case in, uh, in her argument, which we didn't actually talk about in the interview, but she talked about Montgomery, Alabama, and they had this incredible public swimming pool. And when the judge, federal judge said, no, you have to integrate that pool. It was not integrated at the time. You have to integrate that pool. And African-Americans were allowed to use it. The city shut it down. This is many years ago, but they shut it down totally. So yes, it punished the African-Americans who couldn't swim there. It also punished the whites. And as she argues, when you do something like that, it's not a zero-sum game. Everybody loses. And then she adapts that argument into so many other policies. But that's an easy one to understand. The pool got filled in. It doesn't exist anymore. And everybody is the loser because of that. It's an interesting argument. Again, the book is The Sum of Us. It has both an adult and it now has recently released a young adult version. And I think this trend of taking books that are somewhat sophisticated and making them more approachable for young people and trying to get them into school curriculums and in school libraries. I think it's a really interesting one. And it does put, as Beverly so well exemplifies, it does put a different emphasis on what kind of editing she's doing. Yeah, I think current affairs writing for kids is really, really important right now. And I think it's really important also, too, because it teaches them critical thinking. And I think critical thinking is a vital skill in today's world. I can't wait for Charlie to read the YA version of The Sum of Us. We've just formed our own book club. Um, <laughs> she's making me read a Disney book as the first book, of course. But then I'm going to make her read The Sum of Us. And I'm looking forward to those discussions because... Even if she only, as Beverly says, even if she only takes one or two things and she doesn't understand all the arguments, boy, the central points that Heather makes are really important for any audience to take with them, I think. That's interesting. She's in third grade uh, that you think it's approachable for her. Huh. Well, she's a smart third grader, I'll say. Uh, <laughs> she, 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 uh, she stumps me a lot of times in one, one things she says. And she does say a lot. Uh, Charlie's a sort of nonstop talker. People are always sort of surprised I have a granddaughter named Charlie, but uh, who knew I had a, a an adaptable name? Charlotte is her real name. And I'll never forget the moment when I walked into the delivery room. Charlie was, uh, I don't know, half an hour old. And you said mm. to me, Charlie Gibson, I want you to meet Charlie Canada. And I was gobsmacked. 
it was one of the most memorable moments of my life. And um, I knew I was going to name her that, by the way. I've always known that if I had a girl, I was going to name her Charlie. Always wanted to. Really? Really? Mm-hmm. Well, you mm-hmm. never told me. Uh, anyway, anyway uh, we were, we're, we're, we're digressing here. We hope you stuck with us <laughs> through this conversation because we were really interested in this new phenomenon of adapting nonfiction books for young adults. And we're also very interested in the editing process and how it works in the relationship between authors and writers. Uh, authors and, and editors. Um, anyway, uh, let's let's get to the people who made this podcast possible, who will bring us back onto topic. And uh, we have a coda uh, from both of them. We do. Next week, we're going to talk to the great and unbelievably prolific Harlan Coben. If you are a mystery writer and you haven't picked him up, oh, please do. You will really, really enjoy this conversation, and he is a lot of fun to talk to. As I told Harlan Coben, I think I put a wing on his house I bought and read so many of his books. Uh, they are, they are, I just, I enjoy him. He's a terrific writer, and he's a great plotter. So anyway, we, we will talk to Harlan Coben next week. But as we said, the people who make this podcast possible, and Coda's from Beverly and Heather. Case with Kate and Charlie Gibson is a production of ABC Audio. It's produced by David Canada in conjunction with Surecam Productions. Randa Salinas Baker is our senior producer and Laura Mayer is our executive producer. We give special thanks to Josh Cohen, Elizabeth Russo, Nania McLean, and Cameron Chertavian. I would say the one thing you can do as an adult, give a kid a book. I just wanted to say, I've never loved books more than I did when I was a young reader. The Girlfriend is a free weekly e-newsletter from AARP built on the belief that girlfriend power is everything. It offers stories for Gen X women related to sex, health, beauty, travel, and money. Whether it's a shoulder to cry on or help navigating the next phase of your life, visit thegirlfriend.com to subscribe. You can also join the Girlfriend Book Club, a closed Facebook group that hosts live author interviews and free book giveaways. Again, it's thegirlfriend.com because everybody needs a girlfriend.